This is Story and Rain Talks, the Story and Rain podcast. I'm Tamara, founder and editor in chief. After over 20 years in the fashion and magazine industries, I launched StoryandRain.com, a digital fashion, beauty, and lifestyle publication where we're bridging the gap between reading a magazine and shopping its pages. On this podcast, you'll discover the emerging trends and tastemakers that matter right now. As a catalyst for creativity and through candid conversations with our community of cultural arbiters, we're your resource for discovering today's most interesting people, projects, and products. And we'll explore the origins for game-changing ideas and careers. With our high-low approach to style and the belief that there's magic in the mix, we're going to inspire you to live your most stylish life. On this episode of Conversations with Creatives, I'm talking to Elisa Licht, whom I've known almost since the beginning of both of our careers. Elisa is a creative brand marketing and digital consultant, longtime fashion PR executive, the author of Leave Your Mark, and one-time social media personality at DKNY PR Girl. And we both got our start working in fashion at magazines at the same time. Since it's the five-year anniversary of the launch of Elisa's book, The Best How-To Book for Killing It in a Career of Fashion and Beyond, I decided it would be just the right time to revisit the manual that provides mentorship and do a deep dive into some of my favorite key points. We tell stories only fashion veterans can tell. We talk about finding one's passion, Elisa's life as DKNY PR girl on Twitter, and so much more, including her favorite accounts to follow on social media. Here's Elisa Licht and I talking all things career, all things fashion industry. In thinking about our talk today, two things came up. One, that it's been about five years since Leave Your Mark, right? Yes. So I thought, and two, as I was going through your book again, I realized that we have such, I remembered that we have such similar experiences in our careers and in starting out. So I thought... On this five-year anniversary, <laughs> let's revisit the book okay, and do a deep dive into some of my favorite key points and things that resonate. Okay, great. But again, so we really got our start in fashion the same way. We both plastered our walls with fashion imagery, which would later kind of clearly drill that fashion into our brains um, about our true passion. And we both had jobs in the beginning of our careers that we hated, which <laughs> propelled us into what we love and I think we're kind of lucky because a lot of people aren't so lucky I always say like that terrible first job that I had like was the was the best 10 months because it just made me do a lot of what you talk about in life and in your book about sort of going after figuring out building the ladder if I forgot what what exactly you say but building the ladder if you don't if you if you don't have one if you don't have somebody to show you the ropes you build the ladder yourself yes so tell us let's recap that a little bit about um how this first you know well for you it wasn't a job it was a it was it was a you were working in a hospital correct Right. So I was, you know, growing up in the 80s, fashion, I didn't know it was a career. Yes. Uh, you know, yes, and, you and when you think about, you know, what your guidance counselors told you in high school, it's like, these are your career options. You yeah. can be a lawyer, a teacher, a doctor. And, you know, I loved fashion. And like you said, wallpapered my room. But yeah. what job was that? I had no idea. You didn't? No idea. So, um, I set out to sort of combine two passions, which one was art. 
and the other was science because I was good at it in school. And I figured, okay, well, you know what? Maybe I'll just combine that into plastic surgery. Aliza, that's so rare for you. It's, you're somebody that was good at science, but also is like a great writer as well. Thank You've you. You've got both. Thank you. Well, pretty amazing. Well, might be the Gemini in me. Oh, I'm Gemini too. Oh, June 6th. June 18th. Oh, hello. So, you know, I thought, hey, I'll just, I'll be a plastic surgeon. That sounded like a good route. And I, you know, again, like surrounded myself in fashion. Uh, in high school, I bought Arthur Elgort's fashion, uh, model's manual rather, took it to college. I didn't know about that. Like I need you to shed a little light on Arthur Elgort's model. I don't know how that got past me back so then. So that is a book that's probably on eBay now for like $500. $500 million. <laughs> I would like love I'd love to take a look at that book. Yeah, so it was just like the aspirational, like all of his shots. And, you know, opening books like that back in the day, you just felt like that was your window to that world. You had no idea how to get there, but that was the window. And I took it to college and I looked at it. I thought it was really cool to like have on my coffee table <laughs> as I studied my science, my neurobiology and physiology. And right. then did that internship, like you said, and I was like, no way is this going to be my life. I am not going to be in a hospital every day. I do not have the stamina. I do not have the will. And I want to work. I like, I want to work in an industry that's joyful. You, you reminded me. So my first job, it's a very long story, but I, I had an, in, I spent some time in France after college and I had an internship in France and it was an internship in finance. I just wanted to have a, a job. And I was able through a friend of the family to get a, an internship. At what did you major in? At though? Merrill Lynch. What did you major in? I majored in English and I minored in French and Russian. Okay, so definitely not finance. So definitely not. No, I was never. But I, I was in France. I needed to do something. My friends wanted to take classes. I was like, I'm sick of taking French. I don't need to go to French class. But I want to be doing something. I don't want to be just tooling around town. So I had this internship. And because of the internship overseas, the first job that I got here in New York was a finance job. And it just could not have been, like, it was 10 months of this is so not your path to the point that, this, you'll appreciate this story. So one day I get a, a memo. Remember the, print, yes. the printed memo? Yes, of course. I come to my desk and the printed memo from HR is on my chair and it, it says that I need to go into HR to talk about dress code. <laughs> they didn't like the fact that I was mix and matching my suits with a mock turtleneck. Oh. My, my DKNY suits, by the way, back then. Wow. I wasn't, I, so it was just like, that was the sign that. You were in the wrong field. In the wrong field. But anyway, to get back to your story. So, You yeah, had the same kind same of thing. aha moment. I was like, if I wear scrubs every day, I'm going to kill myself. Um, right. I remember rubber clogs, same thing. Same thing. Basically the same Red thing. Red lipstick all over the face mask. Horrible. <laughs> I was like, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. So it, it, it was a bit of an epiphany to think like, oh my God, I, I actually, those mastheads, those are people who work at magazines. You know, that I didn't figure that out till college. Yeah. Because I didn't really look at it. You know, you flip through, you kind of pass that page. You don't think about like, oh, what are those jobs? Yeah. What and Exactly. And I, I said, so I called my parents and I said, I cannot do this. And of course, I had zero plan other than I want to work in fashion, which I mean, how many girls say that and have no idea how to get in? And how many of them have we met that are just in fashion for the glamour of it and not really? Anyway, that's another story. Yes. And also they're the daughter of. The daughter of. That's yes. a big one. So I was the daughter of no one. <laughs> <laughs> I knew no one. And I sort of 
you know, I, I did set my mind high on like the Vogues, the Bazaars, the L's, the W. I, I definitely was a little narrow in where I applied because that was kind of it for my internship, which is kind of stupid when you think about it. If you're trying to like break into an industry, you really have to be, you have to, you have to cast a wide net. Yeah, that's true. I did it a little bit differently. So what happened to me is after that horrible job, I quit and I was like, I can't do this. And at that point, you know, I'm still living with my parents. And I said, I need to, I, I don't have anybody. I know, no one I know is in the fashion industry, but I have to figure out how to get there. So I put myself in school. I put myself in Parsons. I applied for, to Parsons for the fashion marketing program. That's awesome. And I did that at night and I waitressed during the day to prove that this was not a joke that to my parents, that this is something that I wanted Smart. to do. But what I did is, so I started going to school at night. Were the classes all that great? Not really, but at least I was immersing myself in fashion. And I went to their after school programs office or, um, and there was a big internship book and I ripped two pages out of the internship book and landed at inter uh, interview in Marie Claire. So you set your sights really high to the magazines that you like to consume. Yes. And then you, and you, apl and you applied. I applied and I landed at Bazaar in accessories and it was the most joyous six months of my life. I mean, it was just like all of a sudden you just, you, you've arrived in that world and yeah. it was a gift. And I you had a great experience great there. Great experience. Richard Sinnott was yes. the accessories director. And do you remember like Carmen Borgonovo and Kimberly Schrader and Sasha Tornan was there. Wow. And I mean, and it, my Liz Tilbaris Amber, Amber was the editor. Rodriguez, yes. Was she your yes. intern maybe or something? She probably or? was an intern at the same time. Yeah. Um, we were all there together. Yeah. And Liz Tilbaris was the editor. And it was just a really wonderful place oh, to God, start. I forgot about that. And then I went to Mary Claire. Yeah. Which was an incredible experience also in a different now, way. Now, you chose not to mention all these names <laughs> yes. in the book. Was there a reason for that? If, if you, if obviously there are many people that would put two and two together and know what was was there what was the reason behind not using I mean yes so I you know in a funny way I mean I didn't want people to focus on the person as yeah. much as the character yes the so type the type the exact exactly so I felt like yeah I can mention names but like what is is that productive that's not the point of it the point is the type of person they were you wanted to get people to focus on the story the story exactly and then you know for some of the tougher characters i didn't want to call people out it just not is the not the point of the book it's not the point of the book it's not my personality you know there's no agenda like that and i just felt like it's not necessary now was i scared that there was going to be i did picture in new york magazine like a a, a chart of like who pe you know character names and who they really are like uh, i was Yes. I was quite scared yeah. that was going to happen. Anticipating that bit of press. Yeah, but, but, then I, but then I realized, well, if you know who you are, then you're not going to be like, hey, that was me, if you're like a culprit, right? right? So I felt like it was, and some of these people are not in the industry anymore. So That's very true. Very true. I re remember in the book, I've got the book in front of me right now, and you really do a big rundown on the, the characters. The <laughs> characters. I, live, I need to find it, but there's... There's Malibu Barbie. Yes. Let's do a little overview of that. I thought that was so spot on. And it really does. I mean, especially for the fashion business. But but you really nailed sort of the, 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 the people that you we all come into contact with and when we're working. 
and our careers. Yeah, I mean, I just think that, you know, there are people who, you know, have really worked to get to a certain place. And then there are other people who have either been lucky, who have faked their experience, who have thrown other people under the bus to get where they are. And I, I thought, why not put it into childhood characters that we can all relate to? Yeah, I, I really... <laughs> <laughs> The all-fluff boss who has a big title and actually doesn't do anything. Mr. Spacely is probably the most annoying boss to have because you know the truth about him, but sadly his peers do not. <laughs> That's a tough one. I feel like I've definitely been privy to that type of a boss. Ken, the person who gets by simply because of his good looks, that is very true in our business. Very. Very true in our business. They, you, they are literally there because they... They're wallpaper. They're wallpaper. Um, Mr. Potato Head <laughs> is a really good one. Mr. Potato Head. Giant head, giant ego. There's only one opinion that matters, and you can guess whose that is. With Mr. Potato Head, it's best not to openly compete for the spotlight. If you don't, if you don't strike him as a threat, you'll be much better off. That's great advice. Yeah. The, you know, those are a lot of CEOs in our business. A lot of CEOs in our business. Right, right. Um, so you had this great experience at Harper's Bazaar. Yes. And then um, I had a great boss at Mary Claire, too. There were other people who weren't so great there. But overarchingly, I, I, I've been really lucky to work with some fabulous people. Yes, yes, yes. Um, why do you think you were able to embrace a job in PR and leave editorial and magazines? Well, I kind of, you know... You talk a little bit about it in the book, but... I, I do. But I you mean, were so immersed in the world of editorial, and, and I, I'm interested to see the sort of what, what really changed your mind in a big way. So when I was at Mary Claire, my boss, Yamale, was... Oh you remember Yamale? Oh, my God. Yes. All these names. She was amazing, and she let me do everything. I mean, I was running through with Carlene. I was, I mean... She just let me, she empowered me to do everything. So, you know, after two years, I'm like, well, I'm kind of doing like more than just an assistant job. And when I went in um, to ask for a raise, I was shot down. And not to say that I'm not someone you can say no to, but when I feel like I've outgrown something, I'm not just going to coast. So I'm like, okay, let me look for editor jobs in the business. And I did interview at other magazines, and it was just like there was nowhere to go. Like everyone, That's remember back then people stayed in those jobs for like 10 years. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, am I going to really wait 10 years for someone to move so I can move up like one tiny rung on the ladder? And I don't know. I, I kind of was just like, well, you know what? I speak to these PR people all day long. I know who's good and who's not good or who annoys me by following up 1,500 times or pitches me 80 million times for the same stupid accessory that no one's going to shoot unless they're an advertiser. And I thought, maybe I can just do that job. Because yeah. it seemed like mirror image. Like, it seemed like if I just went to go do that, I had the experience of editorial to know what was happening on the other side. So I called, I'm pretty sure I called Gretchen Gunlock. And she was a town and country at the time. And I said, there's this job at DKNY. I have no PR experience. But maybe if you call them and you recommend me they will consider me even though I don't have PR experience. And that's what happened. It's interesting because there really is a big, there are a lot of people who worked in editorial who then work in PR 
And there's a little crossover the other way, too. They For were sure. in PR, and now they've become an editor. For sure. And now there's even crossover from editorial to brands, internal editorial. Right, and that's what's happening now. You talk about, in your book, which I think is so interesting, you talk about the lat- – la- I think that people underestimate the lateral move. Mm. I know that I've always been comfortable with that because especially if, it, it, if it's bringing a whole – if it's a great brand or if it's – you know, if there's something about the job that I can sink my teeth into, I think that a lot of people underestimate the lateral move. And I think that's sort of what you were saying. Um, I forgot what you were saying exactly about the lateral move in your career. But I think that don't you agree that people really underestimate taking a job that might seem like a lateral move? Because not all lateral 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 moves aren't necessarily lateral moves if, if you're learning something completely new or, you're, like I said, with a great brand or... A hundred percent. So, excuse me, I will say that I think younger people today are really impatient with the growth in their careers. And taking a lateral move when you can see sort of the end game of where you can end up, it's not not where you start. It's like where you're going to end up if you take that lateral move. So it doesn't really matter that it's lateral in that moment. It's like what is that, what doors is that move going to open? So, and even, you know, listen, I don't believe in salary, you know, taking a salary cut. I think you should always either make the same or increase as you go, just because you'll feel better about it. I don't think anyone would feel good taking a salary cut, but a lateral move, like you say, that teaches you something different, that exposes you to a different network, that shows you a different side of the business is really not lateral if you're learning. No, not at all. Not at all. I think that you make a great point about people today sort of feeling, you know, feeling very impatient. There are a couple of other things that you say too in the book that um, one, which I think is super important, which really I'm so puzzled by this. You said, I asked a lot of questions about the bigger picture. I find nobody does that. (laughs) I can't remember the last time I had an assistant or, you know, any kind of support staff that like really tackled a job in that way. I remember in my first job, my first internship, which much like, you know, when you were at Mary Claire and you were feeling like you were doing more than what your title suggests, like I was that person at interview who was an intern and a fashion assistant, but I was styling shoots and I was, I was kind of an associate editor. Um, but the one thing that I did was I always asked about the bigger picture. I carried a notebook around wherever I went. I wrote everything down, and I always wanted to know sort of how to connect the dots. Well, you're smart. And, and I don't think – I think that I think that's a, such a valuable – I mean, that, that will te- that, that's all you sort of need um, when you're teaching yourself how to, how to work and be – you know, and, yeah, learn in your job. I, I think it I think it comes from and probably you were the same way where while I appreciated the current position that I was in, I always had my eye on the next. Like what's the next rung? Right. And if I'm gonna ma- you know, take on more and manage up, like I need to know what's happening here. Yeah. So, um and I think, you know, in general, being a curious person, that is really it's another type of skill because you are, I, I, I am curious. It's like, wait, why are we doing it that way? Like, what's the purpose of that? Yeah, you just want to be better. At, that's how you become better at your job. But I feel, I do feel like there are, you don't really see that so much lately where people are really like trying to dig a little deeper and connect the dots. It's, we're, we live in such a society of like, 
what's in front of you, what's next, what's now, what's happening now. And I think that's a big skill to sort of hang on to. I think also we both had um, the same experience where, um, actually, let's talk about this first. You also said that accessibility makes you indispensable. Mm -hmm. That's another big one that I think gets forgotten these days, don't you? People don't want to be accessible. No, it's like a dirty word. It's a dirty word. It's a dirty word. It's a dirty word. You can't be the... Right. And listen, I mean, I... You know, on one hand, I can I can say that I understand their their mentality, and when I say their mentality, I really do m- mean millennials because that is predominantly the group, and I would say on the younger end of it because the oldest end of it is like thirty seven, thirty eight at this point, right? Yeah. But, and I understand work life balance is important, and I of course enjoy work life balance, and we I think all it's aspire is, and it's essential, but. I maintain, and I had this argument on Twitter, Twitter the other day. Oh, you did? Yes, because CEOs, I had this argument on Twitter the other day because I maintain that CEOs, the successful ones, will respond to an email in like 2.3 seconds or not at all. So they're going to see it, they're going to respond to it, or they're going to make a conscious decision not to respond for whatever reason. That's a really good point. But they are faster because I, I was joking, but not really. I was like, it's kind of a problem when the CEO of a company responds faster than their PR person. Like I was waiting for someone to get back to me. And then I was like, well, I'll just email the CEO. And like two seconds later, she's, I, I, I have an answer. And I'm like, okay, you're P, like literally your PR person. It's been like a week and a half. So. Wow. So I think, you know, being accessible does make you indispensable. And that's from the highest level to the lowest. Yep. And that's just always been my mentality. I want, I've always wanted to be that go-to person. Absolutely. Um, me too. Yeah. And I, I feel, I, I, I felt like it was expected of me too, to just always. Well, it, we, you're right. We were trained that it was like a 24-7 job. Yeah. In editorial, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I would co- I would be working in a fashion closet till ten o'clock at night and come home to like messages on an answering machine. Yes, that dates us. When were you at Marie Claire, by the way? Ninety six to ninety eight. Okay, so that's yes, that's when I was at interview. Ninety six to ninety nine, exact same time. And then you were at DKNY from ninety eight to the end of twenty fifteen. So that's when you and I were working together. Yes, because. For a short period of time, when I after I left my my interview job, I went to Cosmo. Yes, that's really when we worked together for the most part. Yes, that's when we worked together. That's mm-hmm. exactly what it was because I w- and I was accessories editor there for a short period of time because Elaine Farley moved me right into fashion. But for a, a big chunk of time, that's when I was working with you. Like, let me ask you this: I was also thumbing through the book. Are you responsible for creating like one of the very first lookbooks yes. in life in fashion? No. Or did no. the French do that first? Like you, ex- let, first let's explain what a lookbook is. You explain. I'll you're explain you're the editor. I'll explain what a lookbook <clears throat> is. It's such a fashion industry term, but it is um, a collect. If whether it's an accessories collection or a fashion collection, it's documentation of all the looks all the items for the season and they're usually numbered and they're usually in a book and it's a, it's a reference book for editors. Um, and for them to call in. For them to, for them, it was a way we order 
or it is a way. Well, no, not anymore. It's a, it was a way. Rest in peace, the lookbook. <laughs> it, was, it was a way we ordered samples for our shoots. Yes. And you tell the story in the book about how you... The accessories lookbook. The accessories lookbook. You use a lot of ingenuity to kind of realize that all these pieces... And it's so funny. when Again, when I was going through the book recently, I, I had like such a flashback flashback to being <laughs> in that closet oh yeah and I remembered what it looked like I was like oh my god I remember this by the way for everyone listening I remember I, I think it sounds like we were like abused in a closet the, we these were are not. these oh. are rooms these are not like tiny little closets right 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 <laughs> a lot but that's that's a, another really good point a lot takes place in a closet in yeah. fashion yes actually when we were when we were at um when I was at Cosmo at the time, our office, it was the old, not the Hearst Tower, a um, few blocks down on 57th Street. 227? 224 West 57th Street. Our, our whole fashion department was in kind of a room, a big, big, a big closet room. That's where the whole department yeah. stayed. But anyway, that's where fashion samples are, are you know, kept in closets, yeah. in big closets. But I remember being in there and I remember the look of it and I remember the boxes and I remember your Polaroids <laughs> and you tell that story in the book. But that, I mean, that you went above and beyond in your position at the time, right? You I did. Well, first of all, accessories to a fashion company. Yes. That focuses on ready to wear right. is, is really like the stepchild. Yes. And no one cared. Like, no one cared. So here I am joining the company as, you know, accessories PR coordinator. And I'm sitting here thinking, okay, well, I was just on the other side. You guys don't make a, you don't give editors a lookbook? Like, how do they know what to call in? No one had an answer. I'm like, okay, well, I'm just going to make one. And so I made one. That's great. Yeah. And now it's, it's really people were living and dying by those. That was like the way that oh. you got your job done. What does the P, uh, fashion PR job entail today? <laughs> I mean, I th that's a really big question, but I'd love to hear. I will tell you what, what the fashion PR job. So I actually don't even do PR anymore, to yeah. be honest. Yeah. Um, but I will tell you, the fashion PR job today is highly, um, highly uh, balanced between influencer. So I think influencer has really fallen under. I think that is a way that PR agencies have innovated to take on. Because PR doesn't work the same way it used to, right? It doesn't not move the all. needle. You're not going to all of a sudden sell out of a collection because you get a press story. So PR agencies taking on influencer is, is sort of like this added, you know, offering that they have. But the other side of it is that any story can be changed. So I think a lot of PR right now is really PR people. Yes, they're pitching, you know, editors for stories. But if you're, let's say you represent like a sunglass brand. Yep. And it's like the 10 top sunglasses for summer. And you see it pop up on a site. Like let's say Refinery29. And you're friends with that editor. And you email and you say, hey, can you do me a favor and make it the 11 top sunglasses? And all of a sudden, the page is refreshed, and your brand is in. I have to be honest with you. Not that is the joy of my job right now. <laughs> I love that. Um, my type of personality, like I just the kind of person I am. I it, it's it's no wonder. It's it really what I love about working digitally. Like number one, we talked about, and you talk about this in the book. Talk about the extraordinary amount of items that are called in, quote unquote, called mm -hmm. in, ordered for a photo shoot. And, you know, 
at the end of the day, that nothing might get shot. The items might not get used. Um, I am reveling in the fact that I can act in real time, that I can create the story that I want based on experience I had the night before at an event. It's really, uh, it's, it's great. It is great. And I think also like people aren't shooting as much. No. You know, I think they expect brands to sort of service the images. They're all still life, you know, pick up art. And it's just really different. And I and I think that, um, you know, right now I think brands, you know, they're they're really focusing their budget on digital marketing more than PR. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another gem from Leave Your Mark was act one level above the job that you have. I'm curious to, uh, for you to tell, how do you think that can backfire? Well, that's a, it's a gem, but it can, how do you, th- how do you think that can backfire for it somebody? Can, it can backfire. And I, and I think I, 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 I give a little caveat in the book where I say like, you know, it's not about being cocky, right? It's not about thinking that you can do everything. And it's certainly not about making your direct boss feel that you are after their job. So it's more about just anticipating your boss's needs and it like if you're an assistant or you're you're a junior person in the company like yes you have your list of job responsibilities but why not think ahead to like okay so what's the next step of that job and like take it on you're anticipating yes what would be what would be coming next that's that's an interesting way of I just again understanding it. and and that again goes back to being indispensable because all of a sudden your boss is like asking you to do something and you're like oh I actually did that already mm-hmm. I mean that's the best answer ever. Being so useful. Yeah, useful. Um, you do. You talk about cockiness in the book. You say you need to promote your skills and positive attributes without making the person who's, well, you're talking about interviewing in this case, but people, I love this one. Pe- and it's, it, don't, don't, people don't think about this often, but if you think about it, it's really true. People generally want cocky people to fail. Yes. I mean, think about that. That's a good one. I mean, it's like. It's true, right? I mean, and and it's not because, you know, those people are bad people that they want them to fail. It's it's more like, you know, everyone wants to feel like everyone is is working just as hard as the other person and that no one has, you know, no one was handed this like, you know, carte blanche of like, here, you can just go succeed and you don't have to do anything. So I think it's it's just, you know, we want to sort of even out the playing field. Yeah. How have things changed since writing the book? I'll leave things up to you to highlight. Like things, it could be anything. Things in your life, things, you know, thing. So much What has, has changed. changed since writing the book? So much has well, changed. Well, tell us what you're doing now. Okay. And then how have things changed since writing the book? Well, I'll go in order because it makes sense. So with the book, I started, I got the deal in 2013. And because we wanted it to come out for graduation, it meant that it was going to be May of 2015. The perfect graduation book. Did you feel comfortable, just quick yeah. question, did you feel comfortable writing? I mean, you you did had done a lot of writing in your career at that point, but did it seem daunting to you to be, oh, I need to write this oh, thing I that s- flows and I need to create I chapter? said no. I you, said no. An editor s- from Grand Central called me. So at the time in 2009, I had started, I created the DKYPR Girl personality, right, on Twitter. Yeah, we definitely are going to talk about that. So... Um, she was following along and reading. I had a blog at that time, also PR Girl. And she called me one day and she said, I'm an editor at Grand Central. I follow you. I've been following you for years. And I think there's a book in here somewhere. And I said, thank you so much. I'm so flattered. I'm not writing a book. 
And she was Why like, did you say no? Um, because you're such a, you know, you, you always make the most of your opportunity. You know, you're, I was you scared. Usually sees it was fear. It was fear. It was fear. It Just was like, I mean, I'm not that type of a writer kind of fear. No, I knew I could write it because yeah. I've taken a lot of creative writing classes oh, you have. throughout my college. And that's yes. a good tip. Everybody take a cre- you know yeah take it's creative. fun yeah. it's actually a stream of consciousness writing class which is really fun so you just start writing works that muscle yes um it was fear of one balancing day job two kids little kids at the time that's right we forget that there's the whole other piece yeah and like when am i doing this yeah. it was fear of what the hell would i write about it was that's crazy yeah it was fear of well I don't want to write a book that my company is going to own. Like why? It, like I'm not like DK my PR girl is a proprietary character, right? That's right. I'm working for a brand. It's not on mine. behalf of the brand. Yeah. So what am I writing about? Yeah. Um, and there was definitely insecurity about that because I felt like, well, it's not really mine. So like, am I going to write a book about this? And and it's, then ah, that's that right. It's not really mine. Am I going to write a book about it? So I passed. Yeah. And. She was super persistent and, you know, she called a couple weeks later and she's like, hey, did you give it any thought? And I'm like, yeah, still no. And then she was like, well, did you know nonfiction? You could just write a proposal and you can get a book deal from a proposal. You don't have to write it all up in advance, which fiction you do. And I was like, no, Amanda, I didn't know that. That's great. Um, Thanks for. Thanks anyway. And then, you know, it kind of was. I was kind of kicking myself and thinking like, you can't like let fear stop you from doing something amazing that could be amazing. Granted, also fear like, okay, what if no one reads it? And what if it like sucks? Like that was another fear. So there was a whole list of reasons why I shouldn't do it. But, but then it, you had that nagging thing that said, I, how could I pass this up? Well, Which it was, I feel it like was, I would feel it too. was, it was more like not even pass it up because like, oh, it's a great opportunity, but yeah. pass it up like. Come on, Elise, you're being a loser. Like, do, do not let fear stop you. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Right. So I sort of had to, like, yell at myself a little bit. So I started writing, and I felt like the only way to start was really at the beginning. And and then I figured out how to, you know, I write. I can't outline anything. Like, my brain doesn't work that way. I can't think about, like, what are my chapters and where so am I going? That's what I think about when I think of people writing books. I think of having to, like, well, like outline and bullet everything. And I, I that's... That would definitely stop me in my tracks. So they told me to do that, and I couldn't do it because my brain doesn't work that way. So I just have to do stream of consciousness where I just start writing. And I didn't know how I was going to tell the story, and I didn't know, but I knew that I wanted – once I had figured out that, like, okay, I'm going to do this, I knew I wanted it to be a way for people to grab coffee with me and to mentor people. I loved that part. And that's why there's a coffee cup on the cover. And Leave Your Mark is so good. Thank you. How did you come up with that? I came up with the cover. Did you come up with the coffee cup first or leave your mark first? So simultaneously, I drew the cover and I came up with the name at the same time before I had written one word. Because I'm super visual. So for me, like I would rather like draft the visual and then I can, then I look at it and I'm like, okay, now I know where I'm going. And then DKY PR girl, honestly, and this is, I think, a really important point. I was like, you know what? I can tell this story in a lot in a lot of the same way that I tweeted, which was remember I did like celeb X, stylist X, like I didn't name names and a lot of the stuff that I was tweeting about. And I could say brand X. 
Like it didn't have to be DKNY. I could have said, I could have told the whole story Brand X. And that was sort of my pitch to legal because it was a whole legal oh, approval bet. through I bet. And you obviously company. got, did you, you got immediate sign off from Patty and Donna or was Yes, it, for or sure. Were they like, but it was, there were layers, yeah. lots of layers. It doesn't, it's not that simple. Lots of rounds of approval. And, you know, listen, I wanted everyone to be comfortable and proud of it. You know, I wanted it to be something that made the brand look good. And because it, it is a great brand. And so that's what it ends up doing. It. So long story short, when it came out in May, which was joyous and amazing, things started to go downhill because in June, Patty Cohen, my mentor, stepped down. And then in July, Donna Karen stepped down. Was that right then? I yes. Didn't, I didn't realize that was all happening then. It was all then. Wow. And I just felt like, wow. This is like the soul being ripped out of the company. And, you know, I was in the office looking around, you know, walking past Patty's office that was empty. And, you know, her wall, Mm -hmm. right? She had all those 30 years of pictures on the wall that was all taken down. It was heartbreaking. I know. And my my heart's breaking. I have chills talking about it. And I was like, I think, you know, in, in college, I was the same way. Like, I was a hyper studier. And I would go to the library for like 11 hours. And then I would say, okay, I've come to a good stopping point. I would always look for the stopping point where I felt like I had done enough and I could leave the library. That's a good strategy too. Yeah. What's your stopping point? Because you're never done, right? But you have a stopping point. So I thought, wow, is this my stopping point to like end on a high note? Like I've had 17 books, 17 years, amazing mentors. Seems like a good time to leave. Yeah. So I left, consulted for 10 months, hated it, failed at it, horrible. It's it's a very it, it's like what it would what are the, there's like the top ten things most stressful things in life is like what is it like death and I moving. think PR is top up there by the way <laughs> PR is probably in there too but like to go from seventeen years with yeah. the brand and with a woman you know a group and and to be thrown into the consulting world it's like that whole idea it's like freelance versus full time in our business it, it's it's jarring it's hard it would be hard. It's almost like you need to have a little Space. respite before you. But I'm not someone who rests well. Yes. So, so I couldn't just like take a vacay. Like that's not me. I needed to like, okay, what's my strategy? What am I doing? Like I can't just sit around. God forbid I was in gym clothes and like just hanging around my apartment. That to me was that like my gi- worst nightmare. That would give you anxiety. <laughs> Total anxiety. Yeah. So it was like at the 10-month mark that um, I was like, I think I need to go back in-house. So I went back in-house for two and a half years at Alice and Olivia. And then I left this past March. And when I left this time, it was so different because I wanted to leave to do more creative things. And one of the things I wanted to do was the podcast. It's a little, it's a circle back to yes. your beginnings, Yes, Lisa. yes. Because you really, you know, you have a passion for all things creative. Yeah, it's true. And um, so then I'm like, okay, if I'm going to do this podcast thing, then like, all right, well, how am I making any money? Oh, I guess I'll consult again. But now this time, so I'm not doing PR at all. I'm doing creative brand marketing and digital, which is so much fun and so different and sort of ideating what that content looks like and then mapping the strategy of where it goes, whether it's email or paid social or organic social. Not that that works anymore. <laughs> um, it doesn't work. It doesn't all. work anymore. No. And um 
it's been great because this time I am immersed in existing teams at companies. So I actually so work from their offices. Fantastic. Because I don't like being alone. And I don't like working out of Soho House every single day. Like that's not <laughs> been there, done a that. goal, yeah. you know? Yeah. So that's what I'm doing so that, now. And that's, and, <clears throat> and has anything, ch- well, this is my next question to you really is, is what, what would you what would you add to this book if you could go back to it today in in terms of like what has changed so in terms of the content of this book what what would you what what would what would be added so i actually got to update it in 2018 oh you did i did so for paperback so business books how did that come about so That's business books um at grand central if they are still selling in hardcover they don't do paperback a year in like a lot of books go to paperback a year in. Yeah. But if the hardcover is still selling and it's a business book, it, it will stay in hardcover for two years. So I didn't get to do paperback until the third year. And when they told me that we were going to do paperback, I was like, well, I'm not a TKNY anymore. So we have to change, you know, we have to change the cover a little bit. Um, I have to put that whole story in past tense. And then I was like, well, while I'm doing all that, I may as well update the entire book. So I went back in. Because it's an evergreen business tome. Yes, but it needed to be updated. Yeah. And I updated it. But I will tell you that it's still, every every time I look at it or go back to it, yeah. it, it still is relevant. 100%. And I, honestly, there's nothing to change right now other than probably just updating some of the social stuff. Although not even really, because I think Instagram is still fashion's number one. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I went in and I updated pretty much everything. Yeah. I mean, engagement is everything you say. Yeah, in your, it still is. Uh, approachability leads to conversation. Still, we've heard horror stories. Oh, this is what I wanted us. <laughs> Let's take a little detour here. <laughs> okay. We've heard horror stories even of CEOs tweeting out the wrong things. We still, still see that, including yeah. our president. Just, and well, that's a big one. Um but you talked about a story where you you tweeted something about the cobra. Yes, Can, the Bronx please, Zoo cobra. The Bronx Zoo cobra. Was that a company-wide, like, oh, why did we do that? Or was that just a personal Eliza, like, maybe that? Tell the story of that. That's okay. so funny. So, so I think, you know, starting on Twitter in 2009, there were really no fashion brands doing it. So I had no clue what I was doing. But when you start to do it all the time – and people respond to you, it's really fun. And I was like, I kind of love this. And then I would realize like what people reacted to, like what would they engage with? What wouldn't they? So talking about stream of consciousness, again, or things things, in the zeitgeist, yeah, things in the zeitgeist, stream of consciousness, anything I was doing, you know, in my day job, what it was more interesting than being like, and our handbags are now in store, like nobody cares. So really trying to live the brand more than like, like sell the brand and um the bronx zoo had a cobra (laughs) that escaped and it was this huge pop culture moment of like this bronx this this cobra's on the loose and somebody made a twitter account for the bronx zoo cobra and the cobra was tweeting of course, with, you know, 75 S's after every word that had an S. And, and these are the kinds of things that were happening at the advent of, like, Twitter. Like, these were funny things that people were realizing they could do. Hey, I could actually make a fake account. Yeah, make a, an account I'm going to be the Cobra. And be, and be the Cobra. So I was like, 
so I've always been super obsessed with pop culture and, and how it relates to branding. And I was like, I want to, I want to be friends with the Cobra. Like I want to talk to the Cobra. So I started tweeting at the Cobra and the Cobra responded. And then the tweet ended up in the New York times. And that was the first time that I realized, oh, wow. How did they explain it? DKNY PR girl. Well, they were writing a story about the Cobra and how it became this Twitter sensation. And then they included different brands or different people who were engaging with the Cobra. So I was one of them. And I, it was really the first time where I was like, oh, shit, everything I'm saying is a soundbite. Yeah, it's re- it's a rec- on, the, and, on the and, record, and it's on the record, and a major newspaper like the New York Times is gonna is willing to use a quote from Twitter as an actual statement. Right. The, the, Note the, to the, self: the Twitter <laughs> quote as an actual statement. I mean, right. an actual that's, statement. That's what be, yeah. So that was that was crazy, but it was so much fun, and I I, st- I really do miss the Bronx Zoo Cobra. <laughs> Speaking of Twitter, um. That's really where you were, DKNY PR girl. Yes. On Twitter. Um, and I feel that Twitter had, uh, you know, there was hugely popular. And there was a point where it kind of wasn't so popular anymore. It was overshadowed by Instagram. Mm-hmm. There are Twitter devotees that, you know, never left. But it's interesting because I'm, in my experience, at one point, I was told not to focus on Twitter. And I'm being told to focus on Twitter again. That's interesting. That's very, I thought you'd find that interesting. I'm very intrigued by that. Yeah. And did anyone say why? Um, just about, it just another, t- a place to have, that having what we know about Twitter, which is that Instagram is pictures. And the, a voice. And it's voice. Yeah. And it, which is so funny because it was, at one point it was strongly recommended that we don't really need to be on Twitter and we don't really... And um and I'm I've gotten and it's changing. It is changing. And I just think maybe there I feel like there's gonna be like a Twitter uptick again, maybe. I don't know. What do you think? I mean not that again, Twitter hasn't gone anywhere, but there I feel like there were a time when creative brands weren't necessarily it was like here's Instagram and this is a place for all your photos and your you know, your imagery and your creative ideas, but I don't know. I think I think that for people who like writing, it's always it, it's always it's always going to be the number one. Like I'm not someone who is like dying to take a picture of myself every day. Like that's really or of anything else. Like I'm not I'm not so into it. Like I do it because I have to, but I don't want to do it. Whereas I could tweet all day long because I love talking to people. And I also think that when you talk about you know, driving conversation and really immersing and really if you want to, if you're a brand and you want to have your finger on the pulse of what's happening in the world, I do think it's on Twitter. That's where news is breaking. It's where the conversation is. That is where the conversation is. And I think you can learn a lot by being on there. Speaking of Instagram versus Twitter, and again, something that you touch on in the book, when you're, you're giving advice about sort of where to, uh, personally and professionally, where to be. How many platforms do you want to man and take on? And if you don't have strong visual assets, maybe maybe choose something, Twitter over Instagram. Yes. But it, this is an important, this is like an interesting question too, because visual assets and Instagram, are you, you kind of just touched on it when you talked about, you know, the selfie and 
are they important? Because there's been a lot of back and forth, I think, between like the feed must be beautiful, the feed must be curated. But then there, you know, there, a lot of the posts that get a lot of engagement are really raw and they're really, and they're not necessarily, and there are a lot of, they're, they're influent, we, we both know they're influencers and they're influencers, right? And every, everyone's an influencer. So there's a lot of not, you know, great visual assets, imagery on Instagram. So what do you, what do we think about that? Are visual assets important or are they not? I'm, I'm almost confused about that these days. So the Instagram aesthetic. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, no, 100% what, yep. what you're saying. The Instagram aesthetic of the perfect, you know, girl in front of a rainbow wall, perfect lighting is totally Holding over. Holding the perfect latte. Is totally over. It's been over for a while. It has. And I think that, well, first of all, when you think about the feed, right, I think the stat is only 1% of people actually ever see that nine-tile grid. Yep. So people are not seeing that. They're just yep. seeing you in feed. And people want authentic imagery. Yep. They want to see real stuff. That's why people love stories because everyone lets their hair down with stories. It's not so precious. So I think... Do you want to continue? Yeah, keep going. Okay. I think that um, it's really so much more important to have it an authentic page more than these beautiful pictures. Now, I'll give you a really great example. And it was such a cool experiment for me personally, especially with what I do. So two summers ago, um, my sister, my sister is five years younger. My niece is in, she was, um, she's now 10. My daughter is 11. They're in sleepaway camp together. My niece was very homesick. She kept on sending home these letters that were, like, disastrous. And my sister was having a breakdown. She's like, do you see these letters? I need to pull her out of camp. I'm like, stop. Everyone's homesick at one point. You were homesick. You were a nightmare when you went to camp. Like, it's kind of funny if you think about it. Like, I was very homesick at camp. Well, if you have your letters, I want them. <laughs> so I was kind of like, you need to just chill. And I'm like, actually, I'm like, we should post them. Let's start an Instagram account and post these homesick letters. Oh, my gosh. I love that. So we started homesick.com. You did? Yes. Okay. Spelled out. And we started posting my niece's letters. And we said, if you have letters, send them to us. And we posted them. So... Last summer was, the, so we did it for like a month because we started late and we got like 900 followers and people loved it. And we were like, wow, this is like a thing. It resonates. It resonates. And you know, it was like pure organic, like meme kind of stuff. Because it wasn't just homesick stuff. It was also really funny stuff. This past summer, it was like almost like an, a social experiment for me because I literally saw the account go to, to almost 10,000 followers. It grew like over 9,000 followers and these are disgusting, ugly letters. The quality of the photographs are horrible. I'm talking about like a mother taking a picture on her iPhone of a letter and then DMing it to us and we right. post it. So it just shows me it is not about the imagery at all. Granted, if you're an amazing photographer and your feed is beautiful. People expect that from you. And people admire it. Yes, I get that. But really what people want, honestly, is to laugh. To laugh. I thought you were going to say authenticity, but to Well, laugh. that too. Well, it is authentic because they're real. Um, but I think people really just want to laugh. That's why memes are so popular. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it, it's really, it really is interesting, um, especially being a magazine. This is the things that I end up thinking about. But when you're a magazine and think about the feed or 
versus the grid and how the grid is so um, precious, precious, and just. But when you're a magazine and you're po- constantly posting different buckets of content, mm-hmm. it's never going to look consistent. If you go to um, Vogue's grid, if you go to Cosmo's grid, there's no. It's sort of in our da- DNA as editors to keep things beautiful and keep things feeling very curated. But even, you know, on Instagram, like ma- magazines, ca- you almost can't do it. Because I don't think it should be, though. Because it's we're, p- we're constantly posting, you know, 10 different types of content. But um, people, most people are seeing it in, in the scroll. In the scroll. Yeah. So they're just seeing one at a time. It doesn't really matter what feed looks like anymore. Speaking of DKNY PR girl. Yes. Yes. We have to talk about that. Um, I remember Buzz. Like I remember, I do remember being probably at, I guess, at, yeah, at the time it was at Oprah Magazine and there would be Buzz like around the office <laughs> about what DKNY PR girl was saying. <laughs> That's so funny. It is really funny. Um, and I, what were some of your most controversial posts and why? Hmm. Well, I, I do remember being like, oh, Deacon, why posted PR girl posted about this or that? Or so I was, well, there is pre being exposed as the person yeah. and post being exposed. So pre. You were, you were exposed what year? So I was anonymous for two years. Yes. So from 2009 to 2011, I was anonymous. Yes. That's what I'm, that's the period that I'm talking about. So when no one knows who you are, it's really easy to be very snarky. Yes. And I was, I yeah. was snarky. And I, although I didn't name names or anything, but you know, the process of celebrity dressing, like dealing with these personalities and egos, like show requests was a big one. Like these ridiculous oh, show call, requests. You would call people out about fashion shows. Yeah, requests. but I would block out their name and no one would know who it was from, but it would be like this ridiculous request, like, you know, the CEO of a dry cleaning company who would like to attend the show. It's like. In exchange for dry cleaning. I'm like, it's really uh, I'm good. Thanks. The request. I mean, I've, I've been doing this for a very long time. And every PR person who's had to handle a fashion show has the craziest stories about requests that yeah. come through for so fashion I'd, show seating. I would post them. So funny. I would post them. Um, <laughs> so, you know, so one time um, I was watching, you know, I always live tweeted award shows. And the I was best. watching probably, I think it was the Golden Globes and Kristen Stewart was on the carpet. And though I did not say Kristen Stewart, I did say I wish Celeb X would wear a smile with her gorgeous dress. Mm. And the Twilight fans went rabid. Oh, I know something about there. There are the, there are celebrities and there are celebrities that have like rabid fan bases. Yes. And when you hit those people... All kinds of things can happen. So yeah. even though I never so said they, her name, they knew. They came for they came for you. They came for me with death threats. No. Oh yeah, it was. You're joking. I am not joking. I am not joking. Publicly, like publicly, like thousands upon thousands of attacks on Twitter. That's incredible. so. That was a really bad night. Really bad night. Um, you know, for the most part, I would say. I, I think because I was a senior communications person, I was pretty conscious of like what I could say and what I couldn't say. So I didn't have really that many things that I was like, oh crap, I should not have said that. Um, but that really, that night was really especially bad. Aside from that story, have there ever been, did any celebrities recognize that you had talked about them 
Like, did you ever get any emails from publicists being like, we know you were talking about blah, blah, blah last night or something? Did that ever happen? You know, I never criticized a person as much as I would criticize or critique rather the clothes. So like I really took the award show similar to how an editor would of like really critiquing the fashion and making fun of the fashion if if it deserved to be made fun of. Like sometimes, you know, if it looked like a shower curtain, I would say that and I might find a shower curtain character from like a cartoon and put them like who wore it better, you know, kind of thing. Um, so it was always about the clothes, not the person. So no, no one, I mean, yeah, I mean, if a stylist happened to dress them and it was their outfit, I'm sure they didn't like it, but I never heard from anyone. Okay, and not anyone that, like, you guys were dressing at Donna Karen. No, 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 no. No, no, never, never. No, I was very respectful of those people. Obviously, yeah, of course. Um, One of the things that I have to say is you you talk, there are a couple of things that you talk about in the book. You talk about, speaking of DKNY PR girl, you you tell the story of your coming out. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, when you decided, the brand decided that we were gonna, they were going to reveal that it was you. And you had this opportunity to create a video uh, from another video that didn't work out. Um, and it was the perfect sort of tool to kind of reveal who you were. And suddenly this video is crafted and there's this, um, you know, all everything has to fire at the right time because it's going to be posted and you were – actually scheduled to go take your kids or go with your family to see a camp that day. Yes. And you talk, uh, and as you're going through this story about how this really important work thing is going on and you've got, you know, it's a weekend, you've got your personal life. And when the way that you explained all the posting of the video and needing to get it right. And there was that story that you told. And there was another story that you told about, um, being given a task, I forgot which magazine it was, but being given the task by uh, to organize or to return all the old shoes yes. in the shoe closet. I want you to tell both of those stories, please, because okay. I want to make a point about them. There's something very similar about this story of you organizing the shoe closet and the story about what you went through getting this video posted for the coming out of DKNY PR Okay, Girl. so the first part, the DKNY PR Girl video... <clears throat> Teen Vogue had called and they said, and I answered the phone because they called me, and they said, we'd love to have DKYPR girl come and speak at our conference. And I said, oh, well, she's anonymous, so that's not going to be possible. And they're like, well, maybe she can come out at the conference. And I was like, let me get back to you. So I went into Patty's office and I'm like, Teen Vogue wants me or wants her to speak. What do you think about this? I said, you know, it's been two years. Everyone's on Twitter now. There's a lot of brands that are sort of other PR girls. There was Oscar PR girl and Hugo Boss PR girl. And it was, and in truth, all of these fashion conferences were popping up. And I said, you know, we should kind of get the credit for like doing this. And we're like not able to speak because what am I going to wear a bag on my head? So, right. um, That's a really good point. Those conferences were happening and, and it might have been a, it would would have been a missed chance if you just, but, But we both felt like, oh, how lame to like be, be on stage and be like, oh, by the way, like I'm DKY PR girl. So we both agreed that that was too anticlimactic and we needed to do, to, you know, to do something better. So this whole Felita Harris, who is the, was the head of sales at Donna Karen, her sister was a producer 
And she was like, well, why doesn't my sister like shoot a video? We can do like a behind the scenes of Fashion Week video. And I was like, that's a great idea. So we did that. The conference was on Sunday. My camp tour was on Saturday. We went to, um, we drove up to camp. I was supposed to upload the video to YouTube, something that I do not do. Someone in marketing always did that. Uh, I was, I felt, I felt, (laughs) I felt your pain when I read this is all that I've had to deal with, this kind of thing. We're getting it to load uh, and getting it He made technical. it sound so easy. Yeah. He's, he sent me a screenshot. Well, they all do, yeah. Yeah, he's like, I'm going, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going on vacation, but here, here, this is, this is what you, you do. These do three easy steps. So I'm in the car, and I'm like doing it, and I'm like obviously super anxious because this is going to be a, like a massive tweet. It's a big moment in your career. And it's a big moment for an <coughs> enormous brand, an enormous brand. Yes, and a lot of things can go wrong. So it says like missing plugin, and I'm like, what the hell is a plugin? I have no idea. I'm so like fun. flipping out. I call Adam in Texas, and I'm like, you made it seem easy. This is not easy. Please, please help me. And he helps me, and I tweet it, and we just lose all reception because we're like in Westchester at this camp. And I have no idea what happens for four hours. It's unbelievable. And I'm on this tour and I have zero patience and I'm being totally snippy. And, you know, they're showing me the pool and I'm like, okay, we get it. It's a pool. Can we just speed this up? I love that. You're like, yeah, I really felt your pain. But it was what I'm pointing to and why I want you to tell the the next story story is, well, I'll say it now, is dedication. (laughs) <laughs> dedication. No, dedicate, working really, really, re- I think at the core of your book, I think there are people that take their jobs seriously and there are people that just don't, you know? And I think that both of these stories really typify the integrity that you had and the amount of Thank you. hard work that you put into your job. And I think what I would say is, wouldn't you agree that maybe a first step for people is simply to think about whether they are truly career-minded, you know? Yes. A lot of, does that make sense? Yes, and I think just going back so people know the shoe story, the closet. Yes. Um, my boss, who was great, my first, pretty much my first weekend at Mary Claire, super casually said, oh, it, like Friday afternoon, like, oh, can you, can you just pack up? We have to send back all the old season shoes to the designers on Monday. Can you just pack it up by designer? And record what we're sending back. And I, I'm like. I felt that pain too. It's like, oh my God. I'm like, I'm like, this is a 20 foot by 20 foot room of shoes. This is thousands of shoes. That have been here since who knows when, right? I mean, it was. Yeah. So I, I was like, sure. And then everyone left for the day. It was Friday night. And I'm in Hearst in this. Honestly, it was unsafe. I was in the magazine by myself, oh, I know. the only person there crying, pa- literally had an army of, gar- of brown paper bags and I, I, had I, them labeled by designer. And then I went through every shelf and like tossed, you know, okay, Christian Louboutin, tossed it into the Christian Louboutin, but went across every single thing. It's like two in the morning. I'm like, I got to go home. I come back the next day on Saturday yeah, to, finish to finish it up. the job, yep. And then... I realized I didn't record what I was sending back. So I had to uh, unpack everything. Oh, I didn't. Re- I, I missed that part. Yeah. I don't even know if I said that in the book, but that is what I happened. I don't think you did, I think. That is what happened. I literally was like, oh, my God. Like, she wanted me to be like, Christian Louboutin, red slingback size nine. 
picture Polaroid. Yeah. Didn't Pol- do any of that. Just tossed them in by designer. The Polaroid, Had to yeah. unpack everything and redo it. So I spent the entire weekend there. And, you know, I think today people would just be like, that's impossible. I can't do that. Like, that's not, that's not, it's not possible to do that by Monday. I could do it maybe by, you know, but next again, week. But again, we were taught very differently. I mean, I, I would have, you know, I was taught very differently. I was taught when, I mean, I was taught that when somebody asks you to do something, you write it down, you prioritize and you get it done. You just get it done. Yeah. I mean, I don't, that was my first job experience. So yeah. I was like, I, I can't say no. You're right. <laughs> There's no no. There's no no. But I do think, I think that this, the dedication that you had in. It is, you're right. It in, is dedication. In, in <laughs> making sure this video like was posted and went off without a hitch. I think you just really illustrated your hard work and dedication. I think that there are a lot of people that, you know, don't necessarily are are not willing to work that hard, but that's the difference between success and kind of just coasting in a job, you know? Yeah. I mean, thank you. I think, you know, another thing that's, that came up recently that I think is worth mentioning is someone was saying, you know, people are so gracious and they're like, Oh, congratulations on, you know, your podcast, whatever, you know, and people will be like, are you, are you so happy? And I'm like, you know, I'm I'm very happy, but I'm never satisfied. Me neither. I get it. And I'm never like sitting back like, wow, look how amazing I am. I'm always like, okay, what's what's tomorrow? What's next? I, I it's I think it is very much a PR mentality because Patty taught me it's like you're only as good as your last collection. You're only as good as your last credit. It's like I would dress someone for the Globes on Sunday night, come into the office on Monday, feel like a rock star. By Tuesday, I was nothing again. It's like I did nothing. I didn't dress anyone. It didn't happen. What's next? What's happening What's next? next? So I think um, – so the, the person who I was having this conversation with was like, well, that's that's how you become great because you're not satisfied with anything. Or complacent. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have another book in you? No. Well, so I <laughs> I don't think I have another business book, but I definitely have a novel oh. about the fashion industry. Oh, I'd love to. <coughs> we, we're, we're all dying to read that novel from you. That's so fun. I did More pi- creative writing. I did pitch it to my editor, um, actually right before I left Alice and Olivia, and she was like, I love this idea. Give me pages, which is kind of like – all of a sudden you're like, oh, wait, that's like, sounds like a lot of work. So again, I was like, hmm, not really feeling it right now. And then I, the podcast idea was the perfect distraction because I was like, well, that's fast and that won't take 18 months to do. And I can just do that and deflect away from the book. Right. So the book is out there. Okay. I mean, can I you, have, I have a title. I have the cover made. Can you share anything? Like a snippet of, can you give us an exclusive? Um, I will say this. Just some, a little think, something about what to expect from this book? I mean, first of all, if it even happens. If so it let's, even, okay, let's just put it there. We're still in the if it even happens phase. Okay. Um, I would say that through all of us, you included, there's so many stories. Oh. And everyone has these stories in fashion that you can't make up. Like no one would believe the stories. No one. And I think what I want to do is really draw from everyone's experiences, not just my stories. I have a lot of stories for you, by okay, the way. Okay, great. I will make Some sure to call you if I do this. Really good ones. <clears throat> and and then build characters off that. I like that. Yeah. What a great idea. Okay, lastly, before we say goodbye, 
what inst- Instagram accounts do you follow or, or what social media accounts do you follow and for inspiration or for motivation? So it's interesting. Inspiration and motivation I don't need. Yes. I'm very sort of – I sort of channel my own – like I'm motivated. I don't need a push. Um, and I'm kind of inspired. Like I feel like every day is like a new chance. Like you never know what's going to happen. Like I, I kind of wake okay, up every day thinking that. That's a great that. thing. So wh- <coughs> what do you go to social media so for? I, get so I really enjoy – so let's see. On Twitter – I am obsessed with Pop-Tarts. I think when you look at, um, if you look at the account, and obviously you, everyone knows what Pop-Tarts are, mm-hmm. and Pop-Tarts are not an exciting product necessarily, but the person who runs the account is a genius and has made Pop-Tarts into this very obnoxious pastry. <laughs> and it's just really smart and really funny and he calls out people that, you know, say like, well, aren't Pop-Tarts just like ravioli? Like, isn't <laughs> it the same? And he's like, and he'll literally block them and then post, you are now blocked. Like he's. So funny. I assume it's a guy. I, I don't even know. So he, another one, like the Bronx Suits Corporate, where I literally tweeted, I'm like, can we be friends? Because th- these are the people I want to be friends with. Like, I want to be friends with Pop-Tarts. Another account that I'm obsessed with is Best of LinkedIn. <clears throat> I was actually going to mm-hmm. ask you about LinkedIn. You're very active on LinkedIn, it I'm seems. very and I active. Want how w- before you get to your answer how would you uh, instruct people to use linkedin it's your resume it's your resume it's so incredibly important for a while people were not paying as much attention i know and now they really are i mean yeah. i i've actually been recruited from some big oh yeah like from like to be like a creative director at nordstrom like I, I i bet yeah it's it's in- it's interesting it is really important and you really have to think it it's it's kind of like your sh- your store window to your own personal brand. That's really what it is. Yep. So the photo needs to be right. Everything needs to be right about it. And you were saying best of inst- <coughs> best of LinkedIn. <coughs> Tell us about best that. Best of LinkedIn is again a genius Twitter account that calls out all the bullshit on LinkedIn. So. Oh, I have to. I have oh, to check this no, out. No, you don't understand. So, for example, he has a franchise called Fake Kid Monday. So on Mondays, he posts, posts, he he literally screenshots posts of people who are like, this morning I was taking my daughter to school and she asked me like, mom, how are you so successful? And then the mom proceeds to tell this amazing story about how successful she is. And he's literally like, that's, that's a fake kid. You're just using a kid to talk about yourself and literally calls out. Oh, it is so genius. LinkedIn strategy. (coughs) That's funny. That's really funny. I mean, he's so obnoxious and he'll like, he'll make fun of, and he doesn't cross out their names either. He's like, he's going for blood. He just pulls it right out. He's going for blood. Like someone was like, you know, talking about negotiation and he's like, no, Doug. You actually failed at that. Like, he, he's re- – it's genius. I have to check it um, out. Instagram, again, I like I like the clever accounts. Like, when Fashion Week Frog popped up last season, I think it was. Do you, Have you seen Fashion Week Frog? Yes. So, I think that's hilarious. What do you think of Diet Prada? Um, I think Diet Prada has transitioned a bit from where they were originally. I think it's brilliant. Um, but it's – it's different. It's it's more grown up now. It used to be a little bit more um, sort of Wild West. And, um, you know, 
so so that you know those kind of accounts that's what I love I mean I love Brian Boy he's hysterical um I you know I really kind of gravitate toward people who are funny yeah <clears throat> well Elisa this was great thank you so much for being here and chatting today oh my god you were an amazing host and <laughs> thank you for inviting me of course we have to do it again I would love to maybe we'll do it would, you know, it would be really fun to do a round table on, uh, like, an a, a award show post-mortem. Oh. Get some, get, like, four of us. That's a dream. Okay, we'll do it. Okay, thanks. Bye. Thank you.